come into your presence and we thank you, Lord, for loving us. We thank you for the relationship we have with you. Lord, our prayer now is that you go, as we go into your word and look into your word, that your Holy Spirit would open it up for us. But not only that, but that we might also apply it to our lives. Lord, we, we desire to be changed. That is our plea, that you would change us, Lord. And I pray that you would do that to us here today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, why don't we all take our seats? <clears throat> you know, back when my children were young, and that was a long time ago, I can remember when they would get in trouble and they would blame each other. You ever had children do that? Well, it's not my fault. I wouldn't have hit him in the head if he hadn't said that to me, you know. Or I didn't understand what you meant by that. And you know full well they understood what it was. Or she made me do that. Uh, it's always something, but they never take responsibility for what they did. Now, this is called blame shifting. We want to shift the blame off to somebody else. The problem began all the way back in the Garden of Eden. Think about this. God approached or confronted Adam and Eve over the sin that they'd committed. Adam blamed the woman, and the woman blamed the snake, and it's been that way ever since because we tend to want to blame other people. All we want to do is to justify ourselves. We don't want to take responsibility. I'm talking about humans in general now. This is everybody. We don't want to take responsibility. We want to justify what we've done. We want to explain why it was okay for us to do that and what we were thinking when we did that. And the last thing in the world we want to do is to admit to God that we were wrong or to admit it to anybody. Now, I believe, you know, as I look at Scripture, this is why confession is so important. Because it's not that we're falling down on our knees and begging God to forgive us. God is anxious to forgive. That's not the point. We're not trying to wiggle forgiveness out of God. But what God wants us to do is to admit what we've done. In other words, take responsibility, because if you don't take responsibility, then you can't change. And this is such an important concept and um, something that whenever you're counseling with somebody, you try to drive home, that you've got to take responsibility for your actions or you're never, ever going to change. And again, we just continually don't want to do that. Now, if we are honest and um, want to change, we will admit that when it comes to our sinfulness and our sinful reactions and things that we do, that truth be known, we are, we are our own worst enemy. We are our own worst enemy. We are responsible for our choices. I want to talk to you today on the subject of temptation. And I want to share with you some of the truths out of this passage in James concerning temptation. And I also want to share with you some practical steps that you can take to keep you, or help to keep you at least, from becoming a victim of your temptations. So as we go through this, just keep an open mind, examine the scriptures, and think through your own life and how these apply to you and your situation. And sometimes the ungodly choices that you and I make. How can we turn that around? That's what we're after today. How do we turn that around? And in order to do that, we need to understand about temptation and what responsibility is and what it looks like. Let me read you this text. It's in James chapter 1, 13 through 18. Let me read through it for you. It says, When tempted, no one should say that God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then after desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, 
coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us a birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all, cre- of all that he created. All right, right off the bat, I want to look at this passage and I want to share with you four facts or four truths about temptation. They're coming right out of this text, but four things that I want to draw your attention to about temptation in general. So keep that in mind because we sometimes have a misconception about what temptation is and recognizing it and how you respond to it and so forth. But let's look at this, if you will. Number one is this. Everyone faces temptation. Everyone faces temptation. Look at verse 13. It says, when tempted, no one should say this, it says. When tempted. He doesn't say if you're tempted or you might be tempted. It says when you are because he's recognizing, James is recognizing that everybody, if you are a human being, is going to be tempted to sin. Now, that doesn't mean that you're a bad person. It just means that you're being tempted. It's coming your way. Now, we often think that only we, perhaps, are the ones that are tempted, and we tend to look down on ourselves because we think to ourselves, other Christians don't feel like I feel. Other Christians don't have the desires that I have. Other Christians aren't tempted like I am. So what is it that's wrong with me? But in reality, you need to understand that everybody is. Your pastor is, your parents are, your Sunday school teachers are. Everybody is tempted in some form or fashion uh, throughout their life. Now, there are different kinds of temptations. So often when we mention the word temptation, what comes to mind? Yeah, sex. Because, you see, that's what we often think of when we think of temptation. Because that seems to be such a a broad application of temptation. Everybody at some point in in their life has struggled with that. But let me share with you or just give you some examples of other ways in which we are tempted. Now think about if any of these fit you. We're tempted to be prideful, want to be somebody we're not or want to be more than we are. We're tempted to judge somebody and compare ourselves to them because we want to make ourselves look better. We're compared to, we're, we are tempted to lie. You know, if we want something and we're we afraid to face the reality or the facts, then we'll lie. We're tempted to steal, if not to steal blatantly, to at least cheat or lie about something or misrepresent something. We tend to be, want to be a control freak sometimes. Um, we want to be in control. We want to make sure everybody agrees with us and thinks our way. We're tempted to want to run away from our problems. That's a big one. Nobody wants to face their problems, so they escape in various forms and fashions. We're tempted to give in to anger sometimes and let that control us. We're tempted to do addic- become addicted to things. The list goes on and on. So when I'm talking about temptations, the first thing we think of is lust or immorality, being tempted in that area. But I want you to broaden that out, if you will, because you may not be struggling with that. You think to yourself, well, that doesn't apply to me. But there is something in your life that you're probably being attacked in that area of your life. And so think of it as a a broader term and a broader application here because everybody is tempted in some form or fashion. Now, why is that? Why are we tempted? Well, because back here in the Garden of Eden, we were marred. Humanity was marred by the fall. When Adam and Eve sinned, that guilt, that stain, that, that 
messing up of creation is passed down to all of us. And we struggle through and live through and contend with the fall of man. And so we're no different. Becoming a Christian doesn't change that. Becoming a Christian gives you the tools and the power and the Holy Spirit and so forth to overcome that. But it doesn't change it. See, that's what you've got to understand. Because if you're tempted as a Christian to do horrible things, then you need to understand that you're no different than anybody else. It's just that you've got to learn how to deal with that and how to defeat that. And so that's a very important point for you to understand, that you're not the only one because everybody faces temptation in some form or fashion. Now here's the second thing, and that is that temptation never comes from God. Temptation never comes from God. You will never find a situation in your life where God is tempting you to sin or enticing you to sin. Now, if you have questions or thoughts about that or doubts about that, then what does the verse say? You've got to go back to this scripture. In verse 13, James says this, When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, because God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. That's not what God does. Now, see, we think maybe God is, and I've heard this before about, from people, that God is tempting me, to cre- or to carry on with or fulfill this sinful act because he's testing me. No, God, we talked about last week, you know, there are tests and trials in life that God may take us through in horrible situations that we face in life, but the, one of them is not that God would ever tempt you or entice you to sin against what he has told you to, take, to, to do. Now we think to ourselves, but wait a minute, what about in the Garden of Eden? Because in the Garden of Eden, it seems like God put that tree right there in the middle of the garden to entice Adam and Eve to sin. But that's not true. You see, Adam and Eve were created in innocence. That means that they had never been tested to see if they would sin, obey God, or not. When God put the tree in the middle of the garden... It wasn't to entice them. It was a legitimate test to see what they would do because having been created in innocence and having never faced that before, that was the question. Left to their own devices, left to complete free will, would man choose me or would he choose something else? And we know the story. We know that they failed. And because of that, there is a condition that has passed down through the ages upon man, that man is no different than Adam and Eve. Listen, in Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9, it says this, The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? Now, what he's talking about is you and me as human beings, that we are deceitful above all things. In every one of us dwells deceit. We have the capacity to be deceitful, to lie, to cheat, to steal, do whatever. And he says that we are beyond cure. See, you need to understand this as believers. That God's judgment upon mankind, humanity, was that there is no cure. That's the reason for redemption. You see, that's the reason for the cross. It's because God came after the creation that was incurable. And he provided a way for us to become, at least, or work toward what it is he wanted us to be. 
but always with the promise that regardless, because of His grace, He would take us home to be with Him again someday. So in this life, we strive to be more like Christ, understanding that our condition is incurable. That's the reason we die. If we didn't die, we would remain in this condition for the rest of our for eternity. And I thank God for death. Because without that, who wants to live like this? This is also why in John, when John was talking, and I've shared this verse with you recently, I've remembered doing it, but once a sermon is gone, it's gone. I've, I've just never, I don't recall when I did it, but I know that I did. But in John chapter 3, verse 19, listen to this. John is saying this, that this is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. He's talking about Jesus, the light of the world. He said, light has come into the world, but men rejected it because they loved the darkness better. Their deeds were evil. They didn't want to have anything to do with the light. They didn't want him messing everything up. That's the condition of mankind left by, to, their, to their own devices. Given a choice, now listen to this. Given a choice, if you leave man on, to his own devices, man because of his depraved nature now, will always choose contrary to God. That's what the fall is all about. But yet we are responsible for our choices. We're responsible. And you need to understand this, because you know what? Satan cannot make you do something. And and this is an important point to remember. The Bible tells us that Satan tempts us. We're told that. that when, we're talk, when it's talked about in Ephesians, the armor of God, he says he's going to continually be attacking you at your weakest points, flaming arrows coming your way, doubts, accusations, thoughts that are ungodly, whatever it may be, coming your way, always. But that's all he can do. And the evil forces come out against us as believers, but yet we're told in Scripture to stand strong because the one that is in you is greater than the one that's in the world. But we're still attacked. And you need to be aware of this, that you will always be attacked, but yet this is where God comes in and says, but wait a minute, I have overcome this. I've already defeated this. And he can't touch you, but I want you to walk with me. The temptation will always be there. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, Peter says this. He says, His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and goodness. Now right there the Bible's telling you. You're going to be attacked. You're a fallen being but you've been redeemed. And upon redemption, by faith in Christ, God has given to you everything you need for a godly life. You don't have to give in to temptation. And see, this is where we sometimes have bought into this lie that I just can't help myself. I just can't help myself. And yet you can. Because you know what? Back in the Garden of Eden, when man fell... Of his own free will, he made the choice to go against God. And God, out of his love, immediately intervened. And he had a plan that was really, before the foundation of the world, a plan to redeem 
that fallen creation. And that's what salvation is all about, is that God's redeeming us and God is enabling us, empowering us. And for us to say that we have no choice is not true. We do. So, everyone faces temptation. Temptation uh, never comes from God, never. Third thing is this. Temptation always follows the same pattern. It always follows the same pattern, with minor exceptions of, in everybody's case, it may be a little bit different, but the same pattern is usually followed. And this is the pattern. Okay, let me show it to you. First of all, there's the bait. The bait. That's the thing that the forces of hell dangle in front of you to cause you to become tempted and enticed and ultimately to give in. It's the bait. The bait is different for everybody because it depends on your weaknesses. This is where the Bible talks about Satan is like a a lion. He's cunning. He's out seeking and being deceptive and trying to figure out a way in which he can get to you. It's just what he does. And it always follows the same pattern. Listen to this. James chapter 1, verses 14 through 15. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desires and enticed. Then after desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. All right. There's the, the pattern. Now we'll pick it apart. The bait. Let's go all the way back again to to Adam and Eve in the garden. The Bible says that the Satan in the form of a snake came to Eve and tempted her. God had given a, a command, they shall eat of every tree, but not that one. The one tree in the garden. Now here's the question. What was the bait with which the serpent beguiled Eve? What was the bait that he dangled out in front of her to cause her to do what God said not to do. Now, you see, we may think first, right off the bat, we may think, well, the tree. The tree was the thing that was forbidden. That was the bait. But now, let's talk about that. How long had Adam and Eve been there in the garden? We don't really know. This is the first mention of the tree ever having been a problem. Let's assume they'd been there a year, two years, three years. We don't know. Maybe more than that. Could have been eons. We just don't know. But the tree was never a problem. The tree wasn't enticing them. It was never an issue. Do you know what the bait was for Eve? When the serpent said to her, if you eat this, you'll be like God. Oh. That's what got her. That was the bait. For her, that was her weakness. Otherwise, it would not have happened that way. But Satan knew what the weakness was. What's the bait for you? Think about this. What is the bait? What is it that Satan keeps dangling in front of you that causes you to go down this path into this rabbit hole, if you will, that ultimately leads to sin and death and so forth? What is it that causes you to go down that road to start with? Again, for everybody, it's different. For example, the bait for some of us may be the promise of a better life. My life stinks. I want to change it. So if I'm going to change it, I'm going to do some things that might be ungodly. I might leave my spouse because I want a better life. See, the better life is the bait. 
I want a better life, so I might just steal something from work so I can have more money. I want a better life, so I might do... I might cheat on a test in school because I want to get into the best college. I want something better. And see, that's the reason I make these continuous, un- continuously ungodly choices because I want something better. For some of us, it's happiness. That's the bait. Man, you look back at your life and you're not happy. So you look at your spouse and you say, you're the problem. I think I'll leave you because I want to be happy. I want to be happy, so I'm going to indulge in sinful behavior because I want to be happy. That's the bait. For somebody else, that may not be a problem. For others, it's fame. I want to be well-known. I want to be popular. I want to be accepted. I want to be respected. So we do ungodly things in order to acquire that. I want to escape from all the pain that's in my life, so I'll get into drugs and alcohol because that makes it better, makes it easier. The drugs and alcohol, you have to be a fool for that to be the bait. That's not the bait. The bait is what you think is going to provide for you. And so you get into that. Always something that causes you to seek after something in your life that you're willing to sin in order to get it. The bait's always, always there. But then the next step down the rabbit hole, so to speak, is the desire. And why? In verse 14, here in James, he says that we are dragged away by their own evil desires. They are dragged away by their own evil desires. Okay, now look at the text. They were dragged away by Satan. No, they were dragged away by their own evil desires. Now here's the way that it kind of unfolds. The bait's out there, and I begin to dwell on it. I look at it, and I think about it. And I'm contemplating what it would be like. I can just imagine Eve. Satan drops this one little thought into her mind that you could just be like God and know what God knows. And I can just imagine as she sits there and she thinks about that, maybe day after day. We don't know how long this took place. But she's sitting there thinking and she begins to wonder. I wonder what that would be like. I wonder what it would be like if I were like God. I bet the snake was right. I bet that what he said is true and that if I just eat that, I'll bet you I'll be like God. You see, this step in this whole process is usually where we lose the battle. Because we've taken the bait. we brought it in. We begin to dwell on it. We begin to think about it. We begin to contemplate, okay, what would it be like? And you know as well as I do that in your mind, before you ever take the step of disobedience and ungodly behavior, you have thought it through and you have convinced yourself in your mind that it's going to be better. In some form or fashion, it will be better if I do this instead of obeying God. You see, Satan always raises the question. He'll raise the question in your mind. Would it really be better? And you begin to think about it. But then comes the third step. And that is what I've titled the allurement. Basically, you're fixating. Maybe fixating would be a better word. You're fixating on it. Notice what happened with Eve. Let me back up now to read the verse 14. It says that they were dragged away by their own evil desires. 
and enticed in verse 14. And enticed. You're thinking about it, you're contemplating it, you're really giving it thought, and then all of a sudden you've come to the conclusion, that's what I'm going to do. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 6, it says this, that when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food, pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for giving or for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. Now she looked at it, she thought about it, she contemplated it, she said, you know, it's really pretty fruit. I, I bet it would taste great. And beside that, the serpent said, it'll make me smart and wise and like God. And so she finally came to the conclusion, I want it. After fixating on it, after thinking about it, i got to have it. And it says then that she reached out and took it. And that brings us to the fourth step in this process. And that is that you choose to act on it. You choose to go ahead and fulfill or to go through with the act and commit the sin. In verse 15 it says, Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. After desire has conceived. In other words, it's run its course. It's like a woman becoming pregnant. And she's ready to deliver now. That's the, the image, the con- conception. He said after it has run its course, and now it's ready to give birth. And what you do now, after having let it dwell inside of you all of this time, is you make a choice. Now, guys, listen to me very carefully, okay? That choice to commit that sin for which you have been tempted, for which you have dwelled upon, that choice is your choice. It's nobody else's fault but yours. People want to think, well, the devil made me do it. I just couldn't resist. God says you can. It's not the devil. God says he doesn't have the power to do that. He can tempt but I've taken the power away. He can't control you unless you let him. People say, well, it's my parents. I was raised this way and my parents have taught me this and it's my parents' fault that I'm the way that I am. God says, no, it's not. It's your choice. It's your choice. You think to yourself, well, it's my spouse. If they had acted different, treated me different, been a different person, I would not have done that. God says it's still your choice. Your fault. Well, it was my boss. No, it wasn't. My school teacher. No, it wasn't. God said it was yours. You choose to act. It was yours. Let me tell you something. Those of you that are struggling, those of you that are really looking at your life and thinking to yourself, I'm in a pattern here of destruction that I can't seem to get out of. The very first thing you need to admit and come to grips with is that it's your fault it's nobody else's fault it's yours the temptation comes but you're the one that pursues it and follows it all the way down the rabbit hole until you finally commit the act and don't you please do not blame anybody else or anything else it's only on you but here's the worst part and that is the fifth part of this step or this process In verse 15 it says, And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. In other words, when sin has run its course, and when you've made the choice, there are consequences to pay. 
in the Bible when it's talking about death is, is not just talking about physical death here because they didn't die. They began to die, but they didn't die for another 900 years, so with Adam and Eve at least. So what is he talking about? In James, what does he mean when sin has, has, has run its course and all you're left with is death? Well, in the Bible, spiritual death is referring to anything, any condition that you find yourself in where you have been separated or alienated from God. In other words, God says, you abide in me and I in you because you can't do anything without me. I'm the vine, you're the branch. You've got to stay right here with me. You've got to walk with me in fellowship, walk in the light. And because we are c- contemplating, at least, some sinful behavior, we pull ourselves out from under the light. Men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. I am uncomfortable in the light, so I'm going to walk over here in the darkness. Then the Bible says that is spiritual death. It has nothing to do with your salvation. It has everything to do with the daily choice that you and I make to walk away from God and quench the Spirit and say no to the things of God and walk on the wild side over here in the world. God says, I didn't go anywhere. I'm faithful to you and I stand right here waiting for you to come back. And at some point in life, when it's all run its course and you've experienced the consequences of your own sinful choices, you'll come back and you'll confess, Dear God, I blew it. I did it. It's my fault. And God accepts us back into the fold and back into the fellowship every time. But the consequences don't go away. And there is sometimes hell to pay. The guilt, the shame, the loss of joy, the loss of peace, the alienation, and sometimes the physical damage that we cause to other people in our lives and even to ourselves. Sometimes that doesn't change. And you would think by the time we run through these things, these cycles time after time after time, the scars alone would cause us to come back into the light and walk with the Lord faithfully. But remember, the heart is deceitful, cannot be cured. And there are times in our lives where we choose to walk over here. And I want you to understand so that you can't make any excuses That's your choice. And God lets you do it. And then when you come bloodied and bruised and battered, back to Him, He accepts you like the prodigal son that you are. But the bruises stay. And what God wants is for you and me to understand that we don't have to live that way. He doesn't want us to live that way. And we're unable, this is, the, this is the thing I want you to understand, we are unable of our own devices to change it. This is the beauty of what God has done. Because God says, I have redeemed you. My wrath toward you is gone. Your sins are forgiven for the, from, from birth to death. Forgiveness. I put my Holy Spirit in you to enable you and empower you, and I am right here to guide you and strengthen you every step of the way. And if you stand against the evil one, he'll he'll flee. 
I've taken his power away. I've given you every opportunity, everything that you need for life and godliness. It's not my fault if you fail. It's yours. So it comes down to the choices that we make. And we have to understand that God has provided everything for us to be different people. Very quickly, let me back up here because I want you to remember where we are on this outline. There are four facts about temptation. Everybody faces temptation. Temptation never comes from God. Temptation always follows the same pattern. Here's number four. Temptation always wins when there's a lack of knowledge. It always wins when there's a lack of knowledge. In other words, if you don't know what's going on, you're more susceptible to give in. Watch this. Verses 16 through 18 of James. James chapter 1. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth, that we may be a kind of first fruits for all he created. He's saying here, listen, don't be deceived, okay? Because God has given you good things to enable you to live and flourish and be victorious. The, the devil comes in to lie, to cheat, and to steal. And you buy into that, then you make ungodly choices. But God is giving you every good thing you need for godliness. He says it's almost as if we're the first fruits of all that he's created. In other words, you and I have come to Christ and he is molding and shaping and transforming us. There are others out there in the community that have not made that decision. We're the first fruits. There will be others that follow. Generations that are yet to come will follow. But he's saying to you that if it's a lack of knowledge of what, who you are and what God has done for you, if you lack the knowledge, then you're going to make the same dumb mistakes all over again. You know, back when a few weeks or months ago when we studied the spiritual warfare, we hit on this pretty strong. That God wants you to know who He is. He wants you to understand who you are. He wants you to understand what He's done for you and what you have access to. And when you do that, then you are more able to stand against the temptations. But if you lack the knowledge, you'll fall prey. You'll be victim. This is why it's so important that you come to church that you get into Bible studies, that you read your Bible, that you listen to teachers teach you, that you take to heart the things that you hear. Because if you lack the knowledge, you're defeated. Wisdom is important. Wisdom is the application, the doing of what you know. We're going to talk about that later in this book. But you can't apply what you don't know. And you have to know the truth. So this is why it's so important that you and I have knowledge. Here's now the question. We're shifting gears just for a few minutes. Let me talk to you about this. How do you win when you're tempted? How do you win? How do you overcome this? All right, three things very quickly, just bullet points, okay? First of all, you need to take control of what you think about. Having read the passage and looked at what we've talked about, then if I had to answer the question, tell me what I need to do then. 
when I'm tempted? Well, you stop it at the bait. The bait's going to come your way. You're going to be tempted. But this, the mulling over it, it's the thinking about it, it's the obsessing about it. There's where you get into trouble. And so guard what you think about, take control of it, and recognize the danger of what's about to happen if you don't put a stop to it. Second thing is this. You know the truth about God and about yourself, just what I just shared with you. Know that you belong to God. That God gives peace, joy, and love, and happiness, and all these things. God gives that. It doesn't come from sinful choices. That God wants to change you. All of these things that you need to know or else you're going to give in. Third and final thing is this. Count the cost. You better count the cost. You can choose the sin, but you have no control over the consequences. And that's really the danger. Gosh. You need to sit back and you think to yourselves, you know what? I think I'd be happier over there if I left my wife You better think through that, the consequences of what you're about to do. I think I would be happier if I began to embezzle money out of my company here or the company I work for so that I could have a better retirement because that I deserve it. Well, you better, you know, you better think about that. The list goes on and on. And we never think about the consequences, the people's lives that we damage and the destruction we bring to ourselves. Not to mention... God's heart that I believe we break every time we walk away. We really do. So that's my sermon for you, that you guard yourselves. You guard yourselves. And you take to heart the truth of what, what really happens in life. Now before you start cleaning up, just listen for a few minutes, okay? Sit quietly. If you're here this morning... And you don't understand what salvation is. Maybe you don't understand about God loving you and sin and Jesus on the cross. Let me read a verse to you. It's in John chapter 6, verse 40. If you are here this morning and you do know the Lord, then put this verse in your little repertoire of verses to use, to share with people, okay? The verse goes like this. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks at the Son and believes in Him shall have eternal life. And I will raise him up at the last day. Wow. Now think about the verse. Because this is Jesus speaking. He says now to the crowd that he's speaking to, he says, this is what my father wants, his desire, his plan. That everybody that looks to me and believes in me, he's going to give you eternal life. And then when you die someday, whenever the end of time comes, he's going to raise you back up again. That seems like an awfully big gift to give to people whose hearts are like we just read. It is. But that's what grace is. Grace is looking at you and me as dirty as we are and saying, I still love you. I want you. And I don't want you to be lost. And so he sent his son, Jesus Christ. He died on the cross. God said, I will lay all of your sins on him and he'll pay for it. And then I will give you his righteousness 
so that when I look at you, I don't see your sins anymore. They're gone. I see his righteousness. And I will forgive you and cleanse you. That's salvation. It's not about you promising or changing or doing anything. It's about you becoming and receiving. And once we do that, once we are his children, then God begins to change us. But it begins with that first step. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes for just a moment. If you're sitting here this morning and you have doubts about your salvation, you have doubts about God's love for you, why don't you settle this issue right here, right now this morning? Right there where you sit, why don't you just turn to God in faith? The Bible says whoever looks to the Son and believes has eternal life. Why don't you look to him this morning? Why don't you turn from all of your ways of trying to get to God and just say, Lord, I give up. I know I'm a sinner and I'm turning to you right now and believing in you and trusting you to save me. And then just thank him for what he's done. Take God at his word. Our Heavenly Father, we bow here before you. Father, we are humbled by the reality of who we really are and what we're like as human beings. How we are prone to wander away from you. Father, you don't have to test us to find out what's in our hearts. You already know. Father, we desire to serve you. We desire to walk with you. We desire to obey you. But Lord, the flesh gets in the way and we fall prey and give in and all these things. Lord, I pray for each one of us that you would strengthen us to be honest about who we are, what we're like without you. And then left to our own devices, we choose against you every time but that you have intervened and invaded our lives because you love us. And yes, we can have victory because of you, not us. But God, give us the strength to not go down this hole, to not follow the pattern, to stop it at the moment the temptation enters in. Father, help us to stand strong in you and to trust you and to always faithfully walk with you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.